Michael, it's Bernie. Remember me? Yeah, Bernie, I remember you. So he said, my tech quit. My technician quit. I need to hire somebody really quick. Can you be in the city tonight? I have a show. You're listening to the Valley Voices podcast from New England Public Radio. I'm J. Kyle Sullivan. Looking ahead to season three of our Valley Voices Story Slams, which starts January 19th, we're coming back each month with another podcast highlighting some of our best storytellers from previous seasons. This time, stories about work. Josie Dulles starts off telling us about her first real job. Hi, my name is Josie Dulles. So for me, a big marker of adulthood was getting my first job after college that didn't have an end date. Before that, I had had lots of jobs, but they had been summer jobs or work-study jobs, and I was cool because I knew I was leaving. It was all good. But when I graduated, I took a job at this groovy little startup that was kind of cool in the mid-90s, this groovy little coffee shop that was conveniently located next to where my parents and I lived, um, this little coffee shop called Starbucks. Um, And it was miserable. I tried to quit once a week um, and was never, they kept reeling me back in with weird things like your management material. And I was like, "Uh, I don't know what that means, but definitely not. Um, And other such promises, but I, I kept staying and in my time there, I worked there for about nine months, um, I had a, a couple of revelations. One of my revelations was about the economy and like capitalism and commerce. And you know, at the kind of revelation you can only have when you open up a box that has been delivered from corporate headquarters with signage about reduced fat blueberry muffins. And I was like, wait, is this a typo? Do they mean signs? Because, like, what is signage? That's just a weird word that doesn't mean anything except for signs. Um, and, and, and everything, you know, this, this mentality kind of being part of this corporate machine, this leviathan. I mean, in the 90s, Starbucks had this mentality of conquering the world. They, they taught me at this weird, like, three-day training I had to go to, among many other brainwashing things, um, we will have 2,000 stores by the year 2000. And I was like, oh, okay, when's payday? Like, I didn't care at all. And uh, right now they have 20,000 stores, by the way. So, um, so, but this seeped into my everyday life. I would, like, get a cup, you know, of coffee from somewhere else. And, and I would look at the cup and I'd be like, oh, my God, this cup. Like, this somebody, a board, somebody in a boardroom was like, you know what, we should make the cup blue. And everyone was like, yeah. And then they, like, packed all the, somebody packed all the cups together, and, like, somebody, like, put them in a box, and somebody taped the box, and somebody put the box in a truck, and somebody drove the truck to the store, and somebody unloaded the box, and somebody poured me the coffee, and I was like, oh, my God. Um, my second revelation was about humans and um, our need for kindness um, and our need for ritual. Um, being working in a coffee shop, you see people pretty much like at their lowest pre-caffeine, um, and I was I was nice despite my like deep existential 
crisis that I was going through at the time, I was pretty nice to everybody. And I think about once a day, I thought someone was going to jump over the counter and hug me because I was nice to them. Um, and there was this one guy that I, I really felt like I had a deep relationship with, um, Grande Decaf. He came in every day um, at around 8.30 in the morning. And I kind of made up a whole narrative around him. He was like kind of sad and handsome and um, like possibly recently divorced, at least I was hoping. And um, although now, you know, today I realized I was like, wait, grande decaf is me. Not that I'm recently divorced, but I'm like for in my early 40s and sort of sad. Um, anyway, so grande decaf and I, and you know, I, I created all these stories in my head about me, our future together and what drove him to drink decaf. And then finally, <laughs> One day, I asked him, I said, Grande Decaf, why? Why do you drink decaf in the morning? And he said, um, he said if, if I drank caffeine, I would wake up and realize I hate what I do. <laughs> like, what do you do with that? I was like, oh, my God. Which leads me to Revelation 3, which was that I hated this job. I sucked at it. I did it didn't feed me in any way other than the free reduced fat blueberry scones that I could take home at the end of the day. Um, it, it was, it was, you know, I, I had realized, like, the reason why a job that doesn't end is scary is because if you don't do anything, you will stay there forever. So Grande Decaf was really just a clarion call for me, and I got out of there as soon as possible and took a job at a magnificent paradise of summer camp that completely changed my life and had an end date. Thank you. Frankly, Mr. Shankly, this position I've held, it pays my way and it corrodes my soul. I want to leave. You will not miss me. I want to go down in musical history. Josie Dulles, who took the stage during our Best of Valley Voices event in May of 2015. Next, Michael Klein shares with us a little bit about a job he didn't hate at all. So I'm 12 years old. I uh, had played piano for a little while, a bit of a musical kid, not incredibly musical. But then this thing happened, the musical synthesizer came out. So this was like late 70s, maybe early 80s, and my life really changed. This is when I like to think I became a full-fledged nerd. Synthesizers were amazing. If you don't know what they are, they're sound generators, they're electronic instruments, they're usually attached to a keyboard. And what I did as an 11 and 12 year old was I spent every possible minute that I could at Sam Ash Music Store in Huntington, Long Island, which is where I'm from, and if you wanted to be around musical instruments on Long Island, that's where you went, Sam Ash. Figuring out which salespeople are going to let me play with the synthesizers, which ones are going to shoo me away, which ones are not going to really care. And so I did it as much as I could. It was just, I mean, think of it, an 11 or 12 year old kid, knobs, dials, lights, sliders. It was amazing. So I got to a point where I finally got my own synthesizer and I'd spend hours in my room programming and moving knobs and moving dials with the door locked and my mother would say, Michael, what are you doing in there? I'd say, I'm just playing with my knobs and dials. <laughs> so fast forward a few years later, uh, more than a few years, I guess, and I'm in college. Uh, I had 
purchased and sold synthesizers. I had learned how to program them. I learned about oscillators and filters and LFOs and different brands of synthesizers, Moog and Korg and Roland. And I was in a band in college. But music wasn't a huge part of my life. I was part of a club that brought musical acts to campus. A uh, small college, so we didn't bring, we didn't bring huge acts, uh, relatively unknown folks, except this one time we had a band called J.J. Jumpers from Brooklyn come. And J.J. Jumpers had a special guest synthesizer slash keyboard player. So I liked the music. I wasn't, you know, incredibly into it, but it was fun. And after the show, my friend Bill Bragan, who was in the club with me, said, you should go talk to that, that keyboard player. He's a pretty well-respected guy. Now, I'm an introvert by nature, so here, here's my default. Right, so going up to this guy and just striking up a conversation was not really going to be easy for me, but I thought, you know what the heck. And then I thought about, really, the wondrous beauty of drugs. And <laughs> not for me. And not for me. It was for, for Bernie, for this keyboard player, because he was stoned out of his mind. And it made it so easy for me to just stand there and smile and chat with him. It was a wonderful conversation. Uh, I told him about my interest, and he said, oh, you know what, I'm looking for a technician. I would love to have a, a synthesizer programmer. I need somebody to set up my keyboards and break them down and do programming and troubleshoot and stuff like that. So I thought, great. So he gave me his manager's card, and I'm excited. I think I was a college sophomore, uh, maybe a junior at that time. A week later, I call his manager, and, and here's where I learned about the downside of drugs. His manager said, who the fuck is this? I'm sorry. No, no, don't call this number. Goodbye. So, so that was it. Steve was his name. Uh, so I thought, well, at least I talked to Bernie, right? I mean, I did something that I wouldn't normally have done. I went up and I spoke to him and whatever. A year later, I get this frantic call. Michael, it's Bernie. Do you remember me? Yeah, Bernie, I remember you. How'd you get my number? No, actually, I knew I had my number. From his manager, of course. So his manager must have explained who I was and why I was calling. So he said, my tech quit. My technician quit. I need to hire somebody really quick. Can you be in the city? Tonight, I have a show. He wanted to kind of check me out and give me a chance to be his tech. So I got in the car, left school out in Philadelphia, ended up in New York City, um, got through the night okay, and then didn't hear from Bernie again for another year. And then I get, uh, I graduate from school, and I'm living with a friend uh, working at a fried chicken place, selling frozen yogurt, selling fried chicken. And this was about the time that well, MTV had been around, but MTV was really, well, they still had music videos back then. And they were playing this band called Delight. Does anybody remember Delight? Groove is in the heart, right? right? Amazing band, right? I get this call from Bernie. Michael, I was hired by Delight to play with them. We have to go on tour. Can you come with me? <laughs> so the next thing I know, I'm on tour with Delight. We're in Brazil. We're backstage at Saturday Night Live. We're on the David Letterman show. And I say we. They, I was backstage, just smiling because I couldn't believe how did this happen to me? You know, how did I get out of my regular life into this amazing, amazing life? Um, and so, uh, what I like to think about is that really, in addition to one of the best pieces of advice that I can give to young boys is play with your knobs and dials. <laughs> the other piece of advice that I have, or the best piece of advice that I ever got, was Mike. You should go talk to that guy. Thank you very much. 
Michael Klein, back in January of this year during our Nerds and Geek Story Slam. So that does it this month for the Valley Voices podcast. Keep an eye out the last week of every month when we'll be back with another few stories from your friends and neighbors. Also, we're gearing up for our Season 3 opener, themed Slippery Slope. That's on January 19th. If you've got a story you'd want to audition, share your first line with us along with your contact info. That's at 413-735-6688. Just leave a voicemail. The best 10 lines will be invited to compete on stage at the Northampton Brewery on January 19th. There will be more to come and plenty of chances to audition your other stories. Just check nepr.net for more info. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, and be sure to subscribe for more highlights from this upcoming season of Valley Voices. For New England Public Radio, I'm J. Kyle Sullivan. Mm-hmm.